0: This is a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast.
1: Hey, welcome to the Bite Size Business Breakfast. Best bits from the show from Tuesday, February the 21st. Coming up, we'll be talking to Sir Julian Young, past president of the Institution of Engineering and Technology. Uh, but sits on the Board of Trustees as an advisor uh, to the world of engineering. Back here in Dubai to speak at the Higher Colleges of Technology, but part of a GCC tour to try and encourage more people to take up a career in engineering. Good to catch up with a man that spent 40 years Uh, within the Royal Air Force, ended up being the Air Marshal Chief of Engineers of the Air Force. So knows a thing or two. And one of the questions we asked him was, a pilot and engineer shortage being predicted in the aviation industry? Alan Smith joined us as well. Uh, he's the Chief Executive Officer of the Agthia Group. Uh, Agthea Group, you know him best for Elaine Water, amongst others, uh, uh, and a number of other food products. Uh, that's why they've got a busy week ahead of them at the moment. They are currently uh, down at Gulf Food. In fact, uh, Alan spoke to us about his day one experiences at Gulf Food. He said that he didn't get a chance to leave the stand until, what, four o'clock in the afternoon or thereabouts. Uh, who else joined us? Paul Griffiths was also in studio. He's the CEO of Dubai Airports. Paul was kind enough to come and unveil the uh, Dubai Airports numbers for 2022. Some eye-watering, record-breaking numbers to be expected. But I don't think any of us really expected the extent of those numbers coming through this year. 127% uh, increase on the numbers from 2021. Uh, plus, there's plenty of chat in the studio uh, after the surprise visit to the Ukraine of president joe biden uh, and well there was much uh there was much distraction in the studio as well as myself and a few others got distracted by the uae swat challenge into day two of the action taking place right here in the uae it just happened to be live on the screen in the studio it got us talking about that and other events taking place around the uae
2: We've had over the past 24 hours, surprise visit, wasn't it? We've had Joe Biden in Kiev meeting Vladimir Zelensky. And there was a big cloak
1: and dagger operation wasn't the top, to make sure nobody found out about it. It is amazing. Um, um, and it's amazing how the precision planning of things like this, apparently has been uh, in the planning for quite some time, obviously to coincide with the uh, unfortunate the uh, unfortunate fact that it is a year anniversary being uh, recognized this week since Uh, the invasion itself. Uh, But, yeah, some of the details that we found out, two members of the uh, media acting as the media pool, if you like. They had to give up their passports, their phones, uh, just about everything to travel uh, on Air Force One. That went over to Germany. Then there was a little bit of a lights down. They landed uh, under darkness. They landed without any lights on the plane as well. Extraordinary sort of secrecy there. Then stayed... On the runway uh, with uh, shutters down as well until moving on to uh, southeastern Poland, then onto a train, uh, train overnight into Kyiv. And then, of course, the meeting with uh, the president um, and his wife as well, President Zelensky and his wife. Um, Yeah, lots of planning going into that one uh, and extraordinary detail that's come out since then of the planning as well. We're going to hear from but them. Kudos to them as well. Can you imagine? I mean, just the the, 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 the risk to take someone like Mr. Biden. There's the, the risk. And then who was making the point? I can't remember if it was Brandy or, or Serena saying a little earlier on that they let Russia know 24 hours before. Yes.
2: I guess the the subtle art of diplomacy, isn't it? You've got these back channels, obviously, between major countries like that. But yeah, uh, a lot went into it. This is Vladimir Zelensky speaking. His comments on Biden's visits. Ukrainian, remember the... Uh, The focus, the attention, uh, the attitude of President Biden and the United States to every single Ukrainian to Ukraine. We remain constantly in communication with the President of the United States over the course of this uh, large-scale war. And this is the first visit over uh, 15 years. And this is really the most important visit of the whole history of Ukraine-U.S. relationship. So that was Vladimir Zelensky speaking through an interpreter. Going to hear from Joe Biden as well because he was speaking as well about the visit. And and as you would expect, he's he's physically standing next to uh, Zelensky and showing his support there. We'll hear from him a little bit
1: later on in the show. One of them we haven't mentioned that's ongoing, it's on TV at the moment. It's the UAE SWAT Challenge. That's taking place at the moment as well. It's an event that's grown in recent years. Um, it's something that was created here in the UAE. And it basically brings in together, together the best tactical SWAT teams from police forces around the world who then literally gun it out down at SWAT City, uh, which is down uh, just off the back of... you know Before you get to Outlet Village, It's a little turn off there. So they've created... Um, what you can see on the TV at the moment. That's the one on the Alane Road, not the one by Parks and Resorts. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. sorry, heading down towards the Seven Stadium uh, at the Adler Mall down there, just turn off on the right, um, and they've created this sort of, and it's just a series of challenges that go on for an entire week with, so if you see, like, teams of sort of burly, um, uh, uh, mean-looking men and women around town, it is because of uh, uh, the SWAT teams that are in in town at the moment. Nothing to be alarmed about, it's just an exercise.
2: (laughs) Now, um, we have been talking about hotel room rates at the moment because it's so busy in Dubai. Tom, if you weren't listening earlier, a mate of his is arriving today and was quoted 1,200 dirhams to stay in a three-star airport hotel. (laughs) Uh, Brandy has a barometer for hotel prices in Dubai, which is what, Brandy?
3: The Ibis Ticker.
2: This is the Ibis Hotel on the Sheikh Zayed Road. We're not endorsing any particular brand. It's just something that we like.
3: We are um, endorsing it. They've got the ticker. You build your own ticker. We'll talk about your hotel.
2: Over 800 dirhams tonight, apparently, according to the ticker.
0: This is the Bite Size Business Breakfast, exclusively on DubaiEye1038.com.
3: All right, what well, will be one of our big news stories of the day. Dubai airports has totted up its 2022 numbers and, shock horror, they're pretty good. And to share them with us is the CEO, Paul Griffiths. Morning, Paul. Good morning, Brandy. Well, we'll let you make the announcement. How good is good?
4: Well, it's pretty good. I don't think there's been a year where I've been able to announce triple-digit growth, but 2022 ended up with 66 million passengers. That's up 127% on 2021. So pretty impressive. And I think the growth has been propelled by a very, very strong Q3, which is the busiest quarter we've had since 2019, with 19.7 million passengers, which was 67% better than Q3 2021. So pretty good numbers and the growth continues.
3: Talk to me about that bounce towards the end of the year. What are you putting that down to?
4: Well, many, many things, of course, notwithstanding all of the things that happened here in the UAE. We had the Formula One Grand Prix, the DP World Tour Championship, the Rugby Sevens. And of course, we can't forget the hundreds of thousands of visitors that came to Dubai as part of the FIFA World Cup in Qatar. So lots of things have happened. And of course, one can't ignore the beautiful weather.
3: I don't want to take away from your triple digit growth, but that's compared to 2021, obviously. How close are we to our pre-pandemic targets?
4: We're pretty close. Uh, We recorded something like 89 million in 2019. And I think the monthly numbers, we surpassed 6 million a month in the uh, second half. And if we can get close to about 7.4 million, I think we'll be back at pre-pandemic levels. And indications are we are very, very close indeed to that number
3: we're nearly two months in on the new year. What have you seen so far?
4: Well, we've had a very good January. More detail, obviously, to come a bit later on. But I think that will break a number of records setting aside the pandemic ever. I think we will uh, have surpassed where we were uh, in 2019 with any luck.
3: Fab. So for the full year results, will 2023 be the year that gets back to pre-pandemic?
4: I think it's... Uh, Not beyond the realms of possibility that we'll be back to pre-pandemic levels, particularly, I think, towards the second half of the year. So far, we are looking, I think, at a forecast of around 77 million for the year. But I'm fairly optimistic that our forecasts will need to be revised. We've already revised them three times since we set the budget for the year. So I think if that optimism proves to be founded, and of course, the rebound of China is a very big contributor towards that. We've now got uh, 25 flights a week to seven cities with five different international airlines. So I think that'll be a very strong contributor to what we hope will be a year of complete recovery.
3: Does the recovery in terms of who's going where look like it did pre-COVID or has there been any sort of rebalancing?
4: I think it's pretty much as it was. Uh, Top country is India, 9.8 million passengers in 2022. KSA, 4.9 million, the UK, 4.6 million, Uh, Pakistan, 3.7, the US, 3 million passengers. So pretty much the same pecking order that we saw pre-pandemic.
3: How much of a, a bigger market has Russia become? Have you seen a change?
4: We have. The Russian market has been uh, very significant, much greater than pre-pandemic, more than 100% recovery in passenger numbers compared to 2019.
3: Cargo, however, is uh, has been moving in the opposite direction, contracting in Q4. Other than the, the shift to the, the other airport down the road, what does that tell us?
4: Well I think it says that because the recovery of the passenger market has been so strong obviously a lot of cargo in fact the majority of it is carried in the belly hold of passenger aircraft. As you know during the pandemic a lot of aircraft were converted from passenger to cargo use to get all of the pharmaceutical supplies across the world. Now the world has um, hopefully returned to normal that traffic won't be quite as uh, prevalent as it was before. So yes cargo has contracted back to what we would think to be fairly normal levels and obviously the split of cargo between DWC and DXB has played a big part in that.
3: Do you see it as any economic barometer of how the world's doing in terms of how much stuff we're moving?
4: Cargo is always a very interesting bellwether and actually suggests if uh, the cargo numbers contract that you know recession may be on the way but I don't think that the cargo volume which is down 25% year on year at DXB is a real indicator at the moment because we are in that period of recovery where things are stabilising. If that continued for another six months, I would be concerned. But so far, I don't think you can draw too much from those particular numbers.
3: Well, while we are talking about extrapolating, we've had the boss of Agthia in here, Alan Smith, um, and we asked him how water might act as a bit of proxy data for population. How much insight do you have at the airport as to who's on a return ticket and who's on a a one-way? Does it give you any feel about what's happening to the Dubai population?
4: Well, it does because we got 14.36 million overnight visitors in 2022, almost twice the number we had in in 2021. And of course, the program to double the number of visitors by 2033, we're very aware of, and we are ready to make our contribution. There's a lot of investment going to go into the aviation sector over the next few years, a lot of it at DXB. So we are actually gearing up for a huge surge in passenger numbers as the popularity of Dubai continues to go from strength to strength.
3: What about the population though? Do you have any insight to who might be new visas, anything else?
4: Not in detail, no, but I think the good thing is the point-to-point traffic to and from Dubai is now well above pre-pandemic levels. In December, we had 119% of the visitor arrivals we had even pre-pandemic. So I think that's a very, very good indicator that Dubai as a city is incredibly attractive and I think has shifted up a gear. I think all credit to the authorities and everyone who's pulled together To make that happen. We are now positioned, I think, as a far more attractive city uh, relative to the rest of the world than we were pre-pandemic. And those are very clear from the numbers that we're seeing.
3: You talk about investment and expansion at the airport there. We were talking about pilot shortages this morning. Can you find the people that you need for the airport?
4: Well, we were very fortunate during the pandemic. We knew that the recovery would be very strong. And we also thought it would be very quick and its trajectory very steep. So we actually went into a number of partnerships to make sure that we retained the talent necessary to keep the airport running at full volume as soon as the recovery came. So we were not caught short and we've been able to attract the people we need. Certain segments are more difficult than others, but overall, I think we have now a much leaner and much fitter organisation that's capable of meeting all of the needs of our customers over the, the years to come.
3: Well, DXB has undergone a number of expansion plans over the last few years. You mentioned new investment, though. Where's that going into?
4: Well, what we're doing is we're investing in technology to make the actual passenger flow number even better than before. The idea is that we want to hand back to our customers the most precious commodity of of all, which, of course, is their time. So if we can actually condense all of the different processes down to a single process, so you can just go straight through the airport and then shop and dine and do the things you want to do rather than standing in queues, then I think we'll be very happy because our customers are more happy. That's where most of the investment is going to go.
3: Well, you've got some metrics on that as well, haven't you? Because... It seems 100 years ago that we were discussing the the lost bag summer of uh, of 2022 in Europe, but it's something that you benchmark yourself against.
4: Absolutely right. Uh, We handled 62.2 million individual pieces of passenger luggage in 2022, and our success rate was 99.8%. And I really do apologise if anyone's listening that's been one of the 2.2 mishandled bags out, out of every 1,000 that we handle. And 92% are, are delivered between, are within 45 minutes. So. Hopefully everyone is seeing excellent performance, not just throughout the airport, but particularly in our baggage delivery. Our team are absolutely dedicated. They live in this little dark room underneath DXB and rarely come out into the daylight. So I think it's fair that they should get their share of glory.
3: We've got 30 seconds left with you. What's the big goal, Paul? How busy can DXB get?
4: We are gearing up for over 110 million. What we aim to do is to be able to make DXB the most slick and convenient airport because we want to measure ourselves not as a transport business but as a hospitality business. So if people coming through the airport have a smile on their face and we're serving them in the best possible way, I think that's our goal. The goal is not just about the numbers. It's about the quality of the experience. And I just hope that DXB will be the happiest airport on the planet.
3: Paul Griffiths, the CEO of Dubai International, talking to us about their 2022 numbers, annual traffic exceeding 66 million passengers.
0: Catch up on the business headlines with the Bite sized Business Breakfast. Talking food now because the big Gulf food
2: event is happening in Dubai this week. One of the delegates is Alan Smith. He's the chief executive officer of the Abu Dhabi-based food company Agthia Group, perhaps best known for Alain Water, but so much more than that. He's with us in the studio. Alan, good morning. Thanks for good being morning. with us. Pleasure We'll get on to what you're doing at Gulf Food, but first of all, Brandy Scott, you were down there as well yesterday, and both of you have come back with tales of it just being incredible. Brandy, your experience?
3: Oh, it's look, it's absolutely packed, and we've seen this in the last couple of exhibitions down at the DWTC. If you are going, public transport for the win, absolutely. Don't try and take your own car down, even, even a taxi, because the roads are just chocker. The metro's the way to go.
5: Alan, your experience yesterday? Oh, absolutely the same. I got there there quite early to make sure the stand was ready. We've had customers from all over the world. Literally, I was there. I got there at 9.30. I wasn't able to get off the stand till 4 p.m. We had so many people coming to see us. And so this I mean, for many industries, you're in the food industry, but this coming
2: together of people physically is the revenge conferencing, if you like, seems to be in full flow. But was it valuable? Were they really meetings that you couldn't have done elsewhere? What is
5: the value of attending an event like that for a large company like yours? I think it's it's across the board, to be honest. We met a lot of customers. I met customers from China, from Indonesia, from India, from Brazil yesterday on the stand. I think bringing my teams together from across the region, giving them the opportunity to to talk about each other's businesses and see where there's potential for growth, connections with government stakeholders. I think the whole exhibition really is the the preeminent food exhibition in the region, and it brings the whole industry together.
2: Two days until the anniversary of the start of the war in Ukraine. And we know that led to a massive spike in food prices globally in the summer, effectively, of last year. But according to the United Nations, that seems to be over now. The the Food and Agriculture Organization, their index of food prices is back down to 131. Uh, To give you some context, it was about 134 in January of last year. So it spiked, but it's back down to normal levels now. That's what the data tells us. What's the reality?
5: Look, I think what we're is we still see inflation pressure coming for the first half of the year. Hopefully we'll start to see that settle down in the second half of the year. As you said, a lot of commodities spiked in second quarter, third quarter last year. We've seen them soften. But for us, we're still seeing costs in, in Q1 of this year versus the first quarter of last year elevated So expect inflation for some time, but certainly the outlook is more positive as the year progresses. When you say elevated, what might be the difference in cost Q1 this year to last year? Around 20, uh, sorry, around 10% different versus Q1 last year. So in the middle of the year, I, I think some of our commodities were spiking to the extent of 30 to 40%. We've seen that soften. But certainly on our input costs, we're still ten to fifteen percent above where we were in the first quarter last year. So looking at your revenues for Agsia, because you're a listed company and they came
2: out just a, a few days ago, it was it was earnings season. Revenue up thirty three percent year on year. Profit was was also up. Was that thirty three percent simply just passing
5: on costs to consumers, or was the there's the increase in volume as well? I think it was a mix. And, and don't forget that we acquired new businesses as well, so we had the full year benefit of the consolidation of those businesses. If you look, our our, our revenues were up about 33%, our profits were up about 13%. So you can see there's some differentiation between the top line growth and the profit growth. When we look at how we manage input costs, we have to use a a, a mix of things. One is pricing, the other is optimizing our, our supply chain, our manufacturing costs, our overhead costs, making sure that, you know, we only pass on to consumers what we need to pass on to consumers. But the reality of last year is it wasn't just a, a, a cost plus inflation on commodity cost. It was also a significant cost uh, cost inflation on every material, fuel, everything across the board. So if we look at the, at the
2: pie chart of where your revenue comes from, Agthia itself isn't a household name. We don't look in our fridge and, and get out a bottle of Agthia. Um, but Alain Water, very well known, a household name. how much of, of your business is Alain Water now, and which are the other key drivers?
5: so our food and water business here in the UAE uh, would be around twenty five percent of the business. The rest is a mixture of uh, the agribusiness, the protein business, and the uh, the snacking portfolio. The protein and snacking portfolio has been added over the last uh, over the last couple of years. in fact, our revenues have doubled since two thousand and twenty. Um, but yeah, 25% of what we're, we're selling today, roughly.
2: When you talk about protein and snacking, what kind of brands are we talking about? What kind of
5: products are we talking about? So if you look at our protein portfolio, we have two big brands. We have Nabil, uh, which is a Jordanian-based uh, brand, and we have Atiyab, which is a, uh, an Egyptian-based brand. Um, they would be the two biggest in the portfolio. I think, again... 20... Are we talking chicken? Processed chicken, processed beef, uh, processed meat, uh, so right across the portfolio.
2: Let's talk about one of the things you're launching at Gulf Food, which isn't a food product. It's a packaging product. Alain Water launching the UAE's first locally produced bottle. Talk to us about this bottle and why it's significant.
5: Look, I think if you look at the whole sustainability agenda, it's increasingly important for consumers and also for, the, uh, for stakeholders. So for us, we've been on this journey for some time. We spoke to you before about the plant-based bottle. That was a significant innovation that we did a couple of years ago. We've done partnerships with people like Veolia on RECAP, which is a, a recycling of PET initiative. Um, in January, we announced that we was, we'd signed a, a memorandum of, of understanding with Bayer and with Veolia to establish a uh, PET recycling plant in Abu Dhabi. And this is just the next step. With that came the legislation that, that allowed the use of recycled PET. Uh, in the production of water, so we're very happy as of yesterday to be talking to to consumers and being able to give consumers the opportunity to buy the first UAE manufactured recycled, 100% recycled PET bottle.
3: While we are talking about water, Alan, one of the great things about bottled water is that can be used here for quite a good proxy for population data. The price is fairly uniform. People can be quite brand agnostic. Um, everyone. Needs to buy it and drink it. What do your water sales here in the UAE suggest is happening to our population? What have you seen?
5: So if you look at the, the consumer data or the consumption data for last year, we saw volume increasing by about 5% and value increasing by about 5%. So pricing didn't really move, but I think it's a good indication, as you say, of population. So 5% would be the category growth data for last year and what are you expecting this year or what are you seeing in the first few weeks i think similar similar is similar as our expectation that certainly that's our planning assumptions in terms of how we're looking forward managing our supply chain uh, thinking about our production capacity so Similar trend uh, this year to, to last year. In terms of, of acquisitions, you've bought
2: quite a number of companies over the past couple of years since you've been in the job. Dates is one category, but, but others as well. I know you're not gonna give me a list of your potential takeover targets, but in terms of which areas you want to strengthen in strategically, would it be a, a country, a geography, or would it be a, a food category?
5: I think if you look at the profile of the business, you know, a couple of years ago, 85% of our revenues were UAE-based. Now. 50% is UAE based. We're exporting uh, UAE manufactured products all over the world. Um, we have 17 manufacturing plants across seven different countries. So in terms of our geographic footprint, it's certainly uh, significantly improved. Our current priority is, is obviously to get the benefits and the organic growth from the assets that we've, we've acquired, and we've done a lot of great work in that space. We completed the last acquisition in December last year, which was Abu Elf in Egypt which again is a coffee and healthy snacking brand. So really, really excited about the potential of that. But as we look forward, you know, for us, it's a mixture of organic growth. Plus, we'll also continue to look at potential uh, opportunities in the market.
2: Alan, I'm sure deals will be done down at Gulf Food today. So we're going to let you get back there. I know your feet are hurting from yesterday, but (laughs) it's back to the grindstone.
5: Thank you very much. Appreciate you
2: joining us today. That is the voice of the Chief Executive Officer of the Abu Dhabi Food Company, Agthea. Alan
0: Smith. Just the highlights. This is the bite-sized business breakfast.
1: Acronym explanation the IET, the Institution of Engineering and Technology, a multidisciplinary professional engineering institution formed in 2006 from two separate institutions, the Institution of Electrical Engineers and the Institution of Incorporated Engineers themselves, uh, dating back uh, to the 1800s in their own right. Uh, the man that uh, held the mantle uh, of the presidency, the 140th presidency of the IEE uh, is a man who was uh, formerly with the Royal Air Force for 40 years held the role of Air Marshal with the Air Force and before taking on his role with the IET has since handed over that presidency at the back end of last year but still sits as a trustee on the board of the IET and he's back here in Dubai it's a warm welcome back to the studio to Sir Julian Young
6: Julian thanks for being with us uh, Tom thanks very much indeed for having me again and thanks very much indeed for the most generous introduction I've Look, ever had I think
1: not at all. Anytime. My mum will be pleased. Great to have you. Great to have you. I, I mean, as I said, I handed on the pre- presidency to, uh, to to the new incumbents at the back end of last year. Does that mean you have so much more time on your hands now?
6: I do have time on my hands. <laughs> it's amazing how a voluntary organisation can kind of take all of your time. <laughs> But, but it's a wonderful thing to as, you know as a, as a professional engineer, there's nothing better actually than trying to give something back to our wonderful engineering profession. So it doesn't, uh, it doesn't feel like you're giving every, every moment of your time back. It feels like you're just giving well just trying to make a contribution where you can.
1: You're back in the GCC. Uh, obviously, you had that very successful uh, visit over here during your uh, role as president. Um, good to see you back. Why are you back?
6: Um well I was in fact invited back I think on the uh, after May the trip and the release of the skills survey that we uh, performed a report on back last May uh, I was invited out actually to do a keynote address by the higher colleges of technology uh, which was lovely um I mean since then we've had people on the ground working and following up on all of the recommendations in the report and working with uh, education in particular, trying to see how those recommendations might make a difference for the engineering community here in the UAE.
1: Is it just the UAE that is leading when it comes to engineering, uh, the take-up in STEM subjects as well? Or are you seeing that across the whole
6: of the GCC? Uh, Well, I would say we're actually seeing it across the whole of the globe. Um, I think probably short of China and India, where indeed there are engineers, uh, most other countries across the world, there's a shortfall in engineers. And so why is that STEM activity? It really grew out of trying to encourage young people to take science, to be interested in mathematics, and to really see that career through into engineering. Um, so I think almost it's across the globe. There's an awful lot of it going on within the UAE. It's great to see. It's, it's on the increase. Um, and indeed, uh, I'm heading off to Amman later today, where indeed we've done another skills survey there where there are great similarities actually in some of the challenges that uh, the engineering community face, the engineering employers in getting the right people, the right skills that they need uh, to do the job into the future.
1: We were just discussing um, a few moments ago about the fact that, you know, aviation specifically, an an area you know all too well. um, Some of the the predictions are that there's going to be a a lag in the number of pilots available. There's going to be a lag in the number of uh, aviation engineers available, et cetera, moving forward because of the demand as well. Why do we still, in in light of the fact that it could be a job for life for those (laughs) coming out of education, why do we still have problem convincing children to come into get into engineering, not a problem but in more numbers
6: I think um, it originally starts with a misapprehension as to what an engineer actually does and I think if you look on Google and put engineer in, you'll get somebody with a hard hat and steel boots and greasy fingers uh, which which is completely different to how, I mean there still is quite a bit of that but so much of it is now clean, so much of it is to do with software so much of it is to actually uh, with high end technology and so it's a case of really getting that across to, to young folk, plus also the gatekeepers to the parents, to the teachers, uh, to the, that actually engineering is a great um, career for life, which is exactly the point you made. I think the other issue is it's the status of engineer is perhaps still not quite as high as you would hope your children perhaps will get into become a doctor or a lawyer. You wouldn't necessarily have engineer always um, it, within that particular category of, uh, of thinking. Um, that's that's up to us to change people's mind, and that's what we're trying to achieve.
1: Are we seeing more women get into engineering as well? I know that's something that you look to champion during your time with the IET. Is that happening?
6: Uh, within the UK, we're struggling uh, hard. Uh, about 16.5% of the overall engineering community are made up of women. Um, one of the great things, actually, out of, that came from the skills survey here in the UAE is that um, gender diversity is not an issue. Mm. Uh, some eighty, anywhere between eighty three, eighty seven percent people uh, of the companies that we interviewed would say gender diversity is not an issue. Ethnic diversity is not an issue, and that's a wonderful place to be. Not simply because it's the right thing to do, which it is. Mm. Uh, it's also about fifty one percent of the working population are women. Certainly in the UK, that's probably going to be a similar figure across the rest of the globe. Clearly, if one's only recruiting from half of the population, you're never going to get the number of engineers you need. But way past that, engineers solve problems. And Mm -hmm. if you solve problems, you need diverse thought and you are not going to get diverse thought from just blokes.
1: Moving forward, looking into the future as well, um, has the IET affiliated with any universities here with regards to accreditation to courses, or is that something that you are looking at?
6: Uh, we're working with uh, the HCT on that at the moment. We've been in negotiation. Uh, we've put our they've asked us to look at uh, a large number of their undergraduate courses. Uh, we've, we've filled all the paperwork in. The paperwork was submitted to them about three weeks ago. I was talking to the executive dean, uh, Dr. Sword, yesterday, uh, lunchtime, about that, and we're waiting to hear. But it, it's not up to us to force that on the UAE. We look, yeah. you know, When we looked at the survey, what we really trying to do was hold a mirror up and say, this is what your engineering employees, employers, are saying about the engineering community. These are the things that they want. These are some of their, our own ideas as to how you can achieve that. Accreditation would give you international benchmarking and really show that the quality of engineering is absolutely tip top.
1: So, Julian, great to have you back here. Back again for COP a little later on this year?
6: COPs, I mean, the uh, atmosphere about COP is just so intense. We saw that in the UK over Glasgow. I can imagine that the anticipation of what's going to take place in uh, later on in the year... I'd love to be here later <laughs> in the year. I can assure you that the IET will be. Uh, we'll be working alongside many other engineering organisations to make the absolute best out of it. Sustainability, climate change, biggest problem in the world.
1: We will work on that for you. On your behalf, Sir Julian, thank so much indeed for joining us. Uh, Sir Julian Young is past president of the Institution of Engineering and Technology. sits uh, on the board of trustees of the IET. Our thanks to Sir Julian
0: for joining us live in the studio.